What's up, guys? How are we doing today? Good? You excited? It's almost summer. Who here loves summer? <laughs> yeah. I love summer for the most part, mainly just because of the warm weather. I like the change of pace. Uh, but one of the things that I specifically love about summer is uh, the opportunity to travel. And you guys like to go travel around places, yeah? Okay. Um, road trips are fun. I especially love if I get the opportunity uh, to travel internationally because uh, one of the things that I really love about travel is the opportunity to just be able to experience different cultures. I don't know about you, uh, but I always, uh, I, I kind of like being in spaces that are a little bit different from what I'm used to, being able to learn new cultures, getting to um, just see kind of the way that other people view life, um, learn what, what they think is important, um, learn that, you know, experience their food, see their attitudes, uh, learn their views about life, all this kind of stuff. I find that to be uh, really, really interesting. And anytime you have a group of people, uh, there's going to be a culture that forms there. Uh, I defined culture earlier this year just as kind of the way that a group of people do life together. Um, we, we all are a part of a, a culture here in the United States. There's a, a culture uh, in the city of Cincinnati. There's a culture at the University of Cincinnati. There's a culture here within H2O. Uh, all these different uh, cultures kind of come together and have a massive influence on actually shaping the way that you think and act. Um, culture is something that's extremely powerful. Uh, it, it influences the way we behave and we're surrounded by it, um, but don't oftentimes give a lot of conscious thought to it. Uh, it's really important, almost like kind of the, the air that we breathe, right? It has a huge influence on us. It's extremely important, but it's not something you really think about because you're just around it all the time. And so this semester, uh, we've talked a lot about culture. Uh, we've been do, uh, taking a close look at this culture that we live in right now uh, and seeing how that influences the way that we think and behave. But this alone hasn't really been the goal of what we've been trying to do together as a church. It's just been a starting point. The real goal has been to go to the scripture and examine the culture of God's kingdom. Okay, what does it look like? Uh, to, what's the culture of the kingdom where God is actually treated as king, where people actually live in line with the way that he teaches us to live? So it's kind of been like we've been, uh, you know, using Google Maps, trying to navigate from our culture to, to God's culture. Uh, for it to give you directions, first it has to locate where you are, right? Take an a, a honest look assessment. Where am I right now? What are the ways that I'm thinking? What are the ways that I'm behaving? And then how can I look at the, way, the, the destination I'm trying to get to? What is God's kingdom culture? What are the ways of thinking and acting that that has? Now, God's kingdom is not something that you can just type into Google Maps and it will navigate you there, though. You can't drive there or fly there. Rather, it's something that actually exists all over the world, wherever God is worshipped and obeyed as king. And so this means that the kingdom of God exists uh, in places where there are other kings and other rulers as well that have competing goals. Now, when you become a Christian, you transfer your citizenship to heaven, right? Everyone in here is a citizen of some sort of country in this world. Most of us are American citizens. I know there's probably plenty of citizens from other countries in this room as well this morning. Um, but ultimately, if you are a Christian, your primary citizenship is in heaven. 
I love what Paul wrote to the Philippians in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 20. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see what Paul is trying to tell these people in Philippi here. There is a a reality that you have a citizenship somewhere else. You may be surrounded by people that are living or thinking a certain way, right? For these people in Philippi, he's saying, hey, I want to let you know there's a lot of people around you that, that are, they're living with their God being their belly. Their mind is set on earthly things. Uh, but you have citizenship in heaven, and you're eagerly awaiting from there a Savior. And we find ourselves in a very similar situation this morning. We live amongst a culture that has its mind set on earthly things. In many ways, we live in a culture that does not live with God as king, Because to live with God as king, there is something very important that you have to do, and that means that you have to submit to his rule. Submission is defined as this. It's the action or fact of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person. If you are a citizen of God's kingdom, that means that you submit to that. You, you realize God is a superior force, a superior authority in my life. I'm going to submit my will to his. It means that you say he's the boss and you're not. Now, if you don't submit to God as king, then that means that you're actually living in a state of rebellion. Okay, Rebellion is defined as this. The action or process of resisting authority, control, or convention. And much of our world lives in a state of rebellion against the authority of God. We live in a culture that's in rebellion against the authority of God. And we are so resistant to the idea of authority in our lives that submission almost feels like a dirty word in our culture. Right? Like our our pride hates the idea of submission. And it fights vigorously against it. Our minds have been conditioned to see submission as something that's weak, contemptible, and fit only for cowards or fools who don't have the courage, power, or wisdom to make decisions on their own and take control of their own lives. We've been taught to see ourselves as the highest, wisest, and most competent mind in deciding what is good for our lives. I mean, just think about the messaging that you've actually heard your whole life growing up in our culture. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. You have this idea burned into you that you know what is best for you and only you, and you should follow the desires of your heart because that's the only thing that's actually going to guide you down the right path. But is this idea actually biblical? Is this what God teaches us? I know that this is what we're comfortable with, this is what we're conditioned with in our culture, is to trust ourselves above anyone else. But do you really know what's best for you? Or is your own heart just as easily misled um, as as some other person or group that, that might want to control you? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. There, there's certainly times that submission can be weak or contemptible, right? There's, there's times where people submit to evil leadership uh, for the purpose of self-preservation. 
But submission itself isn't bad. What really matters is who it is that you're submitting to. And so I just have to ask this morning, like, is it possible that there is one that knows what's best for us even better than we can know for ourselves? Like, is it possible that there's one that actually seeks our well-being with greater fervor and greater interest than we do even? If so, wouldn't it make sense to submit to that one rather than rebel against him? I believe that not only is it possible that such a one exists, but that he does exist, and this is God. That he knows what's best for you better than you do. That he actually seeks your good better than you do. And so when he calls us to submit to him, it's actually for our good. And we have to choose, are we going to submit and say, yes, God, I want you to have highest authority in my life, or are we going to rebel and trust ourselves to be king of our lives and to have the highest authority in our lives? It's a hard thing to submit. It really is. It's it's difficult. It requires an incredible amount of trust that the one that you're submitting to knows better than you do. It's hard for our hearts to accept, but I want us to pray together this morning that God would show us the truth about who he is and about the beauty of what it looks like to actually submit to him. So uh, join me in prayer, would you? Uh, God, I just thank you that you are an awesome, good, and perfect God, Lord, that, that you are trustworthy in a way that even our own hearts aren't. Lord, we want to be people that submit to you as king. And God, we know that there's times where if we do that, that's going to clash against what our culture says. That's going to clash even against sometimes what our our own desires may be. So God, I pray that you'd help us to trust you this morning. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, work in our minds. God, I pray that you'd break down walls that we have set up against your authority in our lives. That you'd help us to see the beauty and goodness of who you are and that, uh, Lord, you would motivate us to, to submit to you to cease rebelling against you and just just to choose that we want to follow you as our king. Um, We love you, Lord, and and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. So our culture of rebellion has a long history. It goes way, way back, uh, all the way to our first ancestors. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 1. I also have the text up on the screen, but uh, Genesis 1 is a, is a good time, right? It's God's creating everything, and uh, after he creates each thing, it talks about it, it was good, it was good, it was good. And uh, then he creates human beings last, and in Genesis 1.31 it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And you'll notice that this time where things are described as very good is a time where sin is not yet in the world. There is nothing that's rebelling against God. Everything that God has made is working perfectly in conjunction with the, with the way he has designed it to function. There's no rebellion and everything is very good. And as God creates uh, all of this stuff, and, and his, the, ca- the capsule of that creation is human beings, he creates us in his image And he gives us a special assignment, actually, to be little rulers. So he does give us a measure of authority, actually. uh, But it's still in submission to his ultimate authority. 
But look at what he tells us in uh, Genesis 2, 15 to 16. He says this, uh, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So yes, God, God had earlier given man authority. He said, rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sky. Uh, so, sorry, the, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. Uh, the, we, we see the fish of the sky would be interesting. Um, but, but we see this idea, okay, God has given us authority to, to rule over his creation. But ultimately, he still gets to rule over us. And, and he gives us an incredible amount of freedom. He says, I'm going to let you eat from every single uh, tree, plant, all this kind of stuff. There's just one that I don't want you to eat from. And it is uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you probably are familiar with the story. Things take a turn for the worse. We pick up the story in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, so we'll stop there. What's happened here? What's happened is that humans, rather than submitting to the authority of God, the good creator who made them in his image, instead they trusted the voice of the serpent and rebelled against God rather than obeying him. And this, of course, had tragic consequences. It all came from the fact that Adam and Eve believed a lie that the serpent told them. I find it interesting in, in Genesis 3, 5, he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He tempted them by making them think that God was holding out on them in some way. Right? Like, oh, you know what? God did all this stuff. I actually have a better plan for you. Do you want to be like God? You can do this kind of thing. And you know what's so interesting? They were already like God. Right? Like, like Genesis 1, 26 says, Then God said, Let us make uh, man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We were already like God. But Satan comes and lies trying to make us think that somehow he has some way that can make us more like him. And in fact, all it did was actually create greater distance and greater separation. We didn't need Satan's help to make us more like God. He already made us like him in the first place. We already knew the difference between good and evil because God told us what we should and shouldn't do, and we chose not to listen to that. You know, tragically, our first ancestors listened to the voice of the serpent over the voice of the Lord, and they chose rebellion over submission. And this was both to their detriment and to ours. Right? Shame enters into the world 
What does it speak about? Right, right away after this happens, it says their eyes are open, they knew they were naked. What do they do? They start to hide. They, they put the, these fig leaves together for loincloths. There was no shame before this. It says they're, they're, they're naked, they weren't ashamed prior to this. Death enters into the world. They don't die immediately, but sure enough, they would die eventually as uh, death has, of course, continued to reign for every single person that, that, that's come after them. Creation itself is cursed. We see that it used to be a lot better than it is now. I mean, when Adam was cursed, he talked about how the the ground will now produce thorns and thistles. Romans 8 speaks about the way that creation itself is yearning, longing for its redemption. But you know, it wasn't just Adam and Eve that chose rebellion over submission and had tragic consequences. People have been doing this, walking in their footsteps, generation after generation after generation. You know, you look at the story of Scripture, and uh, God has spoken clearly to his people Israel. Uh, He he had, long story, but made a covenant with this guy named Abraham, made a special relationship with him, and said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. His descendants eventually turn into uh, this nation that we know as Israel. And uh, they were, went into slavery, but God delivered them out of slavery. And he said, I'm going to bring you into this land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be this good place. And as he brings them out of slavery and he's preparing them to, to come into this land that he promised, uh, he gives them a law. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to show you exactly how you should walk. And so he gives them this beautiful law that's not supposed to be something that, that's really restrictive, but rather it's, it's something that's actually teaching them about who God is and how they should live. But instead, as they get into the promised land, they don't do a very good job following it. And if you read the book of Judges, you can see that things really just descend pretty quickly into being an absolute mess. And uh, the book of Judges, it records those, those first generations that were there um, in the promised land. And it's that the, the very last verse of the book of Judges says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as you're reading the story and you know what's going to happen, in some ways Judges is kind of setting you up to realize that we're about to enter into the monarchy where, where soon Saul would become king and then David. And so, yes, in a sense, there was no human king that was in Israel. The problem was, in a sense, there was actually a king in Israel. They had just rejected him. You see, in 1 Samuel, uh, which, which is what's going to get us into the kingship and what comes after Judges, uh, the, the people are asking the last judge. Uh, by the way, judge is just like a guy that would come and be a ruler for them for a period of time, but he wasn't a king. And uh, Samuel was mainly a prophet. Um, but the, the people are saying, hey, we, we need a king over us. And Samuel doesn't want to give them one. And so he's praying to the Lord. And we see this in 1 Samuel 8, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. See, God, God was supposed to be their king. He had already told them all the ways in which that they were supposed to walk. But they rejected that. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They decided that they knew what was better uh, than, than God did. And I have to ask, are we so different from the Israelites? In our culture, we have rejected the Lord as king over us, and we decide that we're going to be the ones to do whatever's right in our own eyes. You follow your truth, right? That's, that's what our culture encourages you to do. 
Are we so different from Adam and Eve? In our culture, we let the deceiving voice of the serpent speak louder than the truthful voice of God. And we let it lead us into rebellion rather than submission. In our foolish quest to be king of our own lives, we miss out on that which is best, which is life under the rule of the one true king. And this leads us into sin, which is a rejection of God's authority and a pursuit of our desires over his. You know, just as the world got a lot worse when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, right? Like shame enters in, death enters in. We continue to make our world much worse as we continue in rebellion against the Lord. You know, you think of all the problems in our world, and I want you to just think of how much different would the world be if everyone, everyone, actually lived in line with what God said? Just think of it. How much different would our world look? No one would be oppressed or exploited. No one would be lied to. Nobody would be forgotten about. No one would be abused. No one would be killed. We wouldn't need jails. There'd be no wars. We wouldn't even need courts. You wouldn't need a police force. You wouldn't even need locks or passwords. You wouldn't have to remember passwords anymore because no one's trying to steal your stuff. Think about that. Like, I mean, it's just like crazy how different our world would look if everyone actually walked in line with what God says, if everyone submitted to him. But unfortunately, we fall way short of this. As we've instead chosen rebellion in the pursuit of our own ways. Now, we have plenty of bad examples that we can look to, right, when it comes to this idea of submission. We've looked at Adam and Eve. We've looked at Israel. But thankfully, we do have a really, really good example of what submission to God looks like. And you see this in the life of Jesus. If you want to see what the culture of God's kingdom looks like, then look at the life of Jesus, right? Like, he's the one that was bringing the kingdom with him everywhere that he went. His first recorded sermon in Mark, Mark 1.15, says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And you would see this, right? Like, that was so amazing. Jesus was such a magnetic figure, right? Like, why do you think people were drawn to Jesus the way that they were? The kingdom of God showed up everywhere that he was. Like you would see all this kind of stuff, the shame and the brokenness and the death and all this that was brought into our culture by sin. Jesus would come and those kind of things would be reversed when he shows up, right? Like so you would see people that are struggling with these illnesses and they're sick and they're broken and Jesus would heal. He's showing the restoration that's coming in the kingdom of God. Or, uh, but, but, you know, it's not just the fact that he was restoring, which is a part of the kingdom of God, but also the fact that he lived in perfect submission to the will of the Father. Always. I, I mean, when you look at some of the statements that Jesus made, it is incredible to see the way that he lived in perfect submission to the Father. And, and, and we believe Jesus is God, like he's God the Son. But look at this still. I, I'm just, these are a few statements I want to share with you. John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. That's some serious submission to the will of the Father. Look at what he said in John 5, 30. 
I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Perfect submission. Look at John 8, 28 to 29. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Look at this, Luke 22, 42. This is when Jesus was, was praying shortly before he was going to be betrayed and crucified. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How different is the attitude of Jesus from the one that we saw from Adam and Eve or from the one that we saw from Israel or frankly from the one that we see in our culture and even so often in our own lives. Jesus was obsessed with submitting to the will of the Father. That's all he did, always, 100% of the time. And this is the culture of God's kingdom. Jesus kind of says, repent, the kingdom, of, the kingdom of God is at hand. Like, yes, it has this powerful uh, re- restoring aspect that, that he was, was doing. You know, he's giving sight to the blind and the lame are walking and all this kind of stuff. But also, you know what he's doing? Always living in perfect submission to the Father. And that is what God's kingdom looks like. The kingdom of God, God is respected as king. This means that we seek his will and do what he says even when it may be difficult. You think it was easy to go to the cross? No, it wasn't. That's actually why you see that prayer that we just read in Luke where Jesus is in distress praying that if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He knew that even if the will of the Father is difficult, it is always what is best. Always. And that's why he was always willing to do it. And the reason that Jesus had to fulfill the difficult will of the Father to go to the cross was because that was the only way that he could purchase entry into the kingdom of God for all of us. You see, this is the the reality of the gospel. When sin entered into the world, there was a serious separation that took place. Right, like you see that that shame that entered in, and and Adam and Eve would have would be cursed, and they're they're cast out of the garden, but. God wasn't done with them. It says that God actually made them clothes. They had these pathetic loincloths made out of, of fig leaves. Instead, God actually makes uh, clothes for them out of animal skins. And he, he speaks of the day that's coming that the seed of the woman is going to crush the, the seed of the serpent on the head. And when Jesus went to the cross, that is exactly what he did. As a matter of fact, in that, that prophecy in Genesis, it, it talks about how the, the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel, but that he will bruise the, the, the seed of the serpent's head. And you see this idea, Jesus was bruised, right? Like he was, he was bruised, he was crushed, he was pierced for our sins, he hung on the cross, he was badly damaged. He even died on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty that we owe. God told us that the penalty for sin is death. He told Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree. If you do, you will surely die. Uh, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. That is what it brings about. So when Jesus went to that cross, though, he didn't go to that cross because he had sinned. 
Remember, he lived in perfect submission to the will of the Father. What is sin? Sin is when we rebel against the Lord, when we put our will above his. Jesus never did that. He's the only one that was always lived in submission to the Father, but he hung on the cross and paid the, the, the penalty, the wages of sin, even though he had none. Why? Because he went there to do that for you and for me. He didn't go to the cross because he needed to pay for his own sin. He did it because he needed to pay for the sin of those that he wants to share in the Father's kingdom with him. And this is what he talks about in Matthew 26. I've shared this passage a lot when I'm introducing communion. But I want, I want to read it again here for you. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. This is when Jesus was sharing his last supper with his disciples. Shortly after this, he'd be betrayed and crucified. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. You know, the beauty of the fact that Jesus' blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins is that it's also what's going to allow us to drink that new wine with him in the Father's kingdom. You see, us in our rebellion, we're not worthy of getting to share in God's kingdom. But because of God's deep and great love for us, he said, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to go and pay the penalty that you owe I'm going to make a way for you to be clean, for a way for you to be forgiven, that through faith in Jesus, you can be forgiven of sin and you can be brought into my kingdom. You know, right now we, we live at the intersection of two clashing kingdoms. They have clashing cultures. God's kingdom exalts God as king. Consequently, the people of his kingdom submit to him and obey him. The kingdom of this world rejects God as king. And consequently, people rebel against him and go their own ways. I implore you today, if you are living in rebellion against God, that today you would lay that down. That you would trust him, that you would surrender to him, that you'd raise your white flag and say, God, I want to submit to you as my king. And you have two major, major reasons to do this. The first is quite simply that life under God's rule is best. You know, it was before sin that everything was very good. When everything was working in submission to the Lord. Even when I had you think about it earlier. How awesome would life be if everyone just walked in submission to the Lord. God is never trying to steal life. He's the giver of life. I love what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10, that The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life in God's kingdom is abundant. It is better than whatever you are able to seek on your own. There is an invitation for you to come. To receive the rest and the joy and the life that Jesus offers us as we submit to the Lord. I love what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Life in the kingdom is good. And, and I hope that you see the beauty of our God that's, that's offering for, for you to submit to him because it's what's best for you. But you know, not, not only should you do that, 
not only should you submit to God because it was best for you, but frankly, there's another reality, which is that one day the rebellion against God is going to be put down. It's not going to last forever. You know, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan to rebel against God, and we followed in his footsteps generation after generation for thousands of years, but God is not going to allow this rebellion to go on forever. The book of Revelation shows us very clearly there's a day that is coming where the rebellion is going to be squashed. And, and Satan is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And he's going to be tormented there forever and ever. You can read about that in Re- Revelation chapter 20. The unfortunate reality is that there are many who continue to follow in rebellion against God and align themselves ultimately with what Satan is doing. And if you don't surrender and repent now before the time is too late, there is a time coming that you may suffer the same fate. I, I look at Second Peter chapter 3, 7-10. to 10. Speaks of how this is going to happen. It says, But by the same word the heavens and earth now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, Peter was writing this to, to suffering Christians that were wondering, why is God allowing us to continue to suffer like this? And some of these, these people that were persecuting them were even scoffing at the idea that God was going to judge someday. And say, no, no, the judgment's coming. It is going to happen. The only reason that God is allowing this rebellion to continue to go on for as long as it has is because he's giving people more time to repent. And so he said, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And, and praise God for his patience. I praise God for the patience he had for, for me and drawing me to himself and, and many others that I know. But guys, one day that patience will run out. I don't know when. It says it's going to come like a thief. But one day, make no mistake about it, if you believe the word of God, which I do, judgment will come. And, and it's, it's scary, but it's true. And all those that are in rebellion against the Lord are going to be separated from him. And when that judgment comes, that's when the fullness of God's kingdom is going to come in, right? Like Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of, of God is at hand, and, and we saw that kingdom come in with him to some degree. And we've seen it still continue now as God's Holy Spirit comes in us and, and, and turns us into people that are, are more like him. We see God on the move. We see aspects of his kingdom here. But one day, after that final judgment, his kingdom will be here in fullness. And just as Jesus perfectly submitted to the will of the Father, that's how everyone is going to be submitting to the Lord and the kingdom. But right now, as we live kind of between those ages where the kingdom is already here but not yet fully here, God has given us the direction and the power 
to live in submission to his rule right now. He sets before us the chance to live in submission to him as the rightful king. Or we have the opportunity to live in rebellion against him as we pursue our own ways. So my question for you is, what are you going to choose? What culture do you identify with? Do you want to live in line with the the culture of of God's kingdom, living in submission to his king, or do you want to live in line with the culture of this world? I want to give us some time to actually think and pray through this. So if you're in the band, you can can come up here. Um, And we've we've talked a lot about different aspects of God's kingdom culture this semester. And um, I actually just want to lead us through some time of praying through all of these different things we talked about. And, and I, I want you to engage with the Lord during this time and just even ask as we look back at these different flashpoints, like, man, am I living in, in line with God's kingdom culture or am I living in line with the culture of this world? And, and so I'm going to kind of remind us of each one of these things. I'm going to lead us in some prayer time, but I'll, I want you to really engage with the Lord. Like, don't just check out during this time. Um, in, in, engage with God and ask him, to show you if you're living in line with his kingdom or with the kingdom of the world. Or, and you know what? If you realize that you need to repent, then, then repent and, and praise God that he's made a way for you to be forgiven of that sin. There's not a single one of us here that's not guilty of it, but what he asks for us is to continually come and submit before him as king. And so, yeah, like I said, the band's going to play behind me. I'm just going to pray. Um, I'm going to give you some time to engage with the Lord, and and I'm also going to be praying some out loud for us as well. So, God, we thank you uh, that you are a good and and awesome and rightful king. Um, You created everything. Everything exists for your glory. God, you're the one that that defines what is right and what is wrong. And and I, I think of the first flashpoint we talked about, your word uh, in a culture of moral autonomy. God, help us to be people that, that treasure your word, that cling to it, that, that let you be the one that, that, that dictates for us what is right and wrong rather than us thinking that we can do that ourselves. Think of the word of Isaiah that said, uh, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. God, let us not be people that do that. Let us not be wise in our own eyes. Forgive us, Lord, of the time that we think that we get to be the author of morality and the decider of that rather than what you say in your word. of, uh, Lord, we we talked about commitment in a culture of flakiness. And Jesus, I think of your words to just telling us, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. God, sometimes it's, uh, it's hard for us to keep our word. God, I thank you that you always keep yours. Thank you for your commitment to us. And God, we know that commitment requires sacrifice. I think that's why it's so easy to be flaky. 
But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people that really are truly and fully committed to you. That keep our commitment and our word to other people as well. Lord, help us to be people that honor you and that honor others in a culture of slander. God, we know that there's uh, so many times that we tear other people down, speak poorly to people, gossip about others. Lord, that's not your way. Help us to be people that honor others. That even, uh, as your word says, outdo one another in showing honor. Help us to be people that lift up our brothers and sisters that are always looking to encourage, to edify. Think of Ephesians 4.29. It said, "Let, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is useful for building up others. God, I ask that that will be the culture that we have in our church. God, we know you call us to unity. And we live in a culture of division. Lord, there's, it feels like there's pressures to uh, divide over so many different things, whether that's politics or uh, ethnicity or um, just a- every minor thing, God, it seems like there's there's so many fault lines in our culture that are pitting people against one another, but you 